Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Car Carol Giacomo. Carol Giacomo is a member of the New York Times editorial board where she writes about foreign policy, national security, and the impact of America's declining international leadership. She was previously a diplomatic correspondent for Reuters, which, which, for which she traveled over one million miles to more than 100 countries with eight secretaries of state. So please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Carol Giacomo. So thanks, everybody, uh, for being here, and to Socolo and to UCLA for hosting this event. I want to introduce my co-panelists tonight, uh, Carl Rastiala, who's a legal scholar at UCLA Law School and director of UCLA's Burkle Center for International Relations. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal, among other leading newspapers. Dick Anderson is a political scientist at UCLA, specializing in the politics of Soviet and Russian autocracy. He's the author of numerous books, including Discourse, Dictators, and Democrats, Russia's Place in a Global Process. And on the telephone, we have Karen Atia, who's the global opinions editor at the Washington Post, where she commissions commentary on global issues from international writers. She writes herself on issues relating to race, gender, and international politics, and previously served as Jamal Khashoggi's editor at The Post. And frankly, it's my strong opinion that we wouldn't still be talking about Mr. Khashoggi's murder and trying to hold Saudi Arabia to account if she and her newspaper weren't such strong advocates for justice for him. So bravo to her for that. So Karen, just to start, um, could you tell us about how you learned about Mr. Khashoggi's death and how the Post mobilized its response? Sure, um, Carol. And again, um, thank you guys for having me. And I'm really sorry I can't be there. Uh, unfortunately, recovering from uh, a bit of a tough uh, virus and illness. And I'm, um, more sad to hear that it's 60 degrees out there and um, it's 12 where I am. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, to answer your question, um, how do we learn about uh, Jamal's death? I mean, basically, or, or rather his disappearance, uh, you know, a number of, of uh, uh, friends and, and people we had in common, we heard about, about the disappearances. And I think for, for us, um, as day one, day two, day three went by, and we heard nothing from um, from him, uh, from his uh, people who were close to him, um, and knowing just how sort of uh, upset um, his work and his writing uh, made the Saudi regime. I think, uh, at least for me personally. I kind of had the feeling early on that at the very least um, I may not be editing him again. And I think we, we just decided to act quickly and we knew that we needed to get the word out. And um, so um, maybe four or five days after he disappeared, we just knew we needed to uh, 
keep the pressure up and, and, and say, you know, this is uh, unacceptable and we want answers and what's happened to Jamal. Um, and I, I think for us, it, it's not, it wasn't just about Jamal, it was also about, um, yes, an, an attack on us, sure, but realizing that if this is something that could happen to someone as, as frankly, famous um, in the Arab world as Jamal, we needed to keep um, the pressure up in order to uh, basically send a message that this was unacceptable to go after anybody in, in this way. Um, so the way the story has progressed since then, I, I don't think I could have even imagined that it would have turned into such an, an international I guess, thriller, frankly, like it has. Well, you know, a lot of times uh, in, in cases like this, not necessarily with journalists, but private individuals as well, the family or, or the sponsors or the employer will, will be quiet and try to deal with the issue on a private basis uh, on the ar argument that sometimes that may be more effective in trying to get answers. Was there any internal disagreement within the Post about going public quite so quickly and also being as as robust as you were in in pushing his case. Um, I don't think so. Uh, I think at the very beginning, at least uh, for us, I mean, all of this again is is unprecedented uh, for 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 us. And um, I think we were thinking that the worst case scenario was a situation where he um, perhaps you know would be kidnapped. Uh, taken to Riyadh, um, perhaps forced to appear on television and declare allegiance to Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or, or yes, taken to um, just taken to jail or, or, or just disappeared. So I think, yeah, obviously in the, in the first initial um, day or day or two, we were we were cautious about our language, and we, but as as the days went on. Um, I think we just decided uh, we just have to we just have to keep this in the news. We just have to talk about this, and um, at least for me personally, I can speak to me personally. I, I just uh, as someone who knew him personally and and um, had lunches, dinners, coffees, and and was on WhatsApp. I mean, I just wanted to speak to who he was as a person. Um, and as a writer and to, to just do what I could to, you know, humanize him um, and to, you know, I'm still processing the loss. It's still, it's still, I'm still stunned by what happened. And um, what do you think about the U.S. government's response? <laughs> you know, I, I am, I'm, let me, let me start with the positive. I am heartened by you know the Congress. Uh, I, I'm heartened, at, or was heartened by uh, you know the the CIA um, being uh, determining um, that Saudi Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman had ordered um, the killing, and I was heartened by um, very strong words coming from both sides of Congress about the need to hold Saudi Arabia um, accountable. Um, I was obviously very uh, um, disappointed and upset and frankly scared at the reaction from the uh, from Trump and from the White House um, basically 
basically seeming to put um, inflated arms deals, uh, numbers of arms deals over the value of a person's life and not only um, Jamal's life, but sort of also what he represents, the uh, putting um, very, uh, uh, putting very narrow interests and short-sighted interests over over people's lives, um, not just journalists' lives, but over um, people's lives, and that sent a very chilling message not just to journalists, um, but to really anybody who's at finds themselves at uh, under the seat of autocrats around the world, and I felt it was a very low point for um, not only for the Trump administration, but uh, you know, for America, for Americans. I think this, these are not our values. Secretary of State Pompeo keeps saying that he's pushing for answers with, with the Saudis, and I'm wondering um, do you, how much contact do you have with the State Department, and do you find uh, his comments credible? So, you know, I, I would, at the very least, uh, you know, we aren't, we aren't privy and to details about what exactly sort of these discussions and, and pushing for uh, pushing for answers are. Um, I will say what I have been saying, particularly on Twitter. I think that every interaction with um, not only Mohammed Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, but any of the uh, sort of top members of the Saudi regime, we should continue to ask where Jamal's body is. Um, and to not only that, but to continue to uh, press and ask, we have they claim that they have five individuals connected to the crime who they refuse to release their names and to release their charges. That is not a sign of a credible um, investigation at all. It makes a laughing stock out of any sort of appearance of a process of of, uh, of justice. So. Um, the idea that Pompeo, or the fact, uh, to me personally, that Pompeo has not been um, more robust about what exactly these discussions are, uh, just leaves too much room, I think, for for deniability and for really just obscuring and putting smoke into um, what exactly we, as uh, a very important partner to Saudi Arabia, what exactly we are doing to use our leverage and our power to make sure that there's accountability and that this never happens again. Um, uh, the UN, a UN envoy, uh, recently went to the region and started to investigate this. Are, do you see any um, any real possibility that, that that effort could have some positive effect? I think, you know, from the very beginning, um, uh, or almost, uh, I will say, let's just say from... Um, uh, uh, early on, also from early on, uh, the post um, we've we've called for a credible, independent international investigation. Um, and you know, what is troubling already, and what is happening with um, with the UN reporters' um, attempts to get justice is that she's not being. Uh, apparently, I'm, I'm understanding she's not being uh, allowed access to. Uh, the consulate in Istanbul in order to even begin this. Um, so I, 
it, it is a good step. Uh, it is it is a very necessary step, but you know, I'm, I think not naive that uh, there will be significant um, obstacles uh, thrown in her way in order to to carry out uh, her job and her work. And it's unfortunate that the United Nations uh, Antonio Guterres uh, has not been stronger on this. Um, and sort of knowing how Saudi Arabia also uses its its weight and its leverage at, at the UN in order to um, pull favor or pull away funding when it feels that it's not getting what it wants, um, you know, the, the stakes are the stakes are, are are definitely stacked. But I am heartened that this is happening. It is a necessary step. Finally, um, because you've been generous with your time, um, what what do you consider justice for Jamal Khashoggi? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, obviously, I, I still believe that true justice would look like um, not only those who who were in that conflict that day and um, and were brutal enough to to do this to him, just to face, um, you know, a proper, uh, credible um, um, process and, and trial. But it's also, as, as we said in the beginning, and I've said in the beginning, it comes from the very top. And ideally, um, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman should face uh, some sort of justice um, in the legal sense. Um, from a, a reputational sense, it is I mean, I think for a lot of Americans, this is his, this is their first introduction to the Crown Prince, and um, you know, despite all the millions and millions of, of PR of painting him as a reformer, for a lot of Americans now, he's just your average murderer, and that is a certain form of of consequence that cannot be undone with money, I think. And so, you know, I, for me, uh, he is paying a price as much as the Saudis, especially um, in the aftermath of Davos and, and Switzerland, as much as they are wanting to say that it's back to business and that, um, you know, that they've moved on. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, it would be extremely difficult for Mohammed bin Salman to step foot, say, in, in, in the U.S., anytime soon without a huge public backlash already means that he's been weakened and he's been diminished. So, um, but I think that's one thing. But I think ultimately um, justice could look, comes in many forms and I have probably way more to say about this than I have time for. But it also means um, for, for us to really fundamentally look at how we engage with the region and how we engage with, with people like him who are just really trying to push in their own little way for 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 freedoms, for the space to breathe in their countries. And um, I think that what it could also look like is freedom for those reformers that are still in jail, the, the women's drivers, uh, the campaign, um, those who led the campaign for women's drive, Lujain Hasul, has been in the news um, quite a bit in the, in the last week. Um, Esamal Zamel, the prominent economist who's still lingering in jail. These are the people that Jamal felt pained over. And I think what, you know, a, a certain form of, of uh, justice could look like is 
for us to help them. And so I hope that that's where you know, some of this fight and this attention can, can go. And, um, you know, I, I, I think in that, Jamal may have done already uh, more in, in death than he could have in life. Um, so, yeah. Thank you very much, Karen. Thank you so much, Carol. So from that tragic, horrible case, we're going to try to uh, open the aperture a little bit wider. Um, as you all know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a, a heady expectation that um, democracy and pluralistic um, government might have more of a chance. Um, by 2005, Freedom House was listing 119 countries as electoral democracies, up from 76 in 1990. By, by 2018, however, the tally had slid to 116, and trends were ominous. Freedom House assessed that political rights and civil liberties around the world deteriorated to their lowest point in more than a decade. China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, Saudi Arabia, as we know, and Venezuela all are what I think we'd all agree are authoritarian states. Turkey, Hungary, Poland, Myanmar, the Philippines, and many others are trending in that direction. So um, the surprise entrance in this is our own United States, which seems to be moving in a troubling fashion as well. So let's start with my erudite colleagues. Um, do you agree that we're backsliding with democracy? And why do you think that's happening? Kyle, start with you. Are you asking about here or throughout I'm, the world? I'm, I'm, I'm asking the bigger question, and then we're going to move very quickly to our own situation. OK. The bigger question, yeah, I do agree. I think, I think the evidence is pretty strong. You listed a bunch of examples of places that have gotten worse. Hungary would be a poster child for that, a place that had uh, obviously limited experience with democracy in the, in the 20th century, hardly at all, a little bit in the 21st century, and now quickly becoming very illiberal, if not authoritarian. And I think there are many other examples. So yes, I agree. Yeah. Uh, I have extreme doubts. Um, I don't want to make a statement about what the world's trend in democracy is, but to start with Freedom House, uh, you know, my colleague Barbara Geddes is a leading expert on these things, and she's written a paper that you could look at uh, summarizing people's view of Freedom House. We can tell Denmark, apart from North Korea, real reliably. <laughs> right? uh, uh, Freedom House basically had Russia, uh, shortly after Putin took over, ranked the same as the Democratic Republic of Congo, which was then engaged in an outright civil war. Well, you know, that's not right. My basic view of democracy is, look, if you let Texans vote and you have a Senate, then they're going to uh, elect Ted Cruz and John Cornyn. Uh, nothing good can come of that. <laughs> now, it may not be a problem for your democracy if they're the only state that votes that way, but when the whole Midwest and the whole South vote that way, it's a problem. If you hold elections in Russia, they're going to elect Vladimir Putin. If you hold elections in Hungary, they're going to elect Viktor Orban. And there are good reasons why Vladimir Putin is in office. He, his approval rating uh, in 2000, when he started, was 
Uh, now it's about 70%. It peaks every so often around 90%, such as when he uh, took control of Crimea. Um, the Russians like him, and there are good reasons. The thing that you've got to understand about Russia is that in 1991, they lost half their population and a third of their territory. It's as if we lost the whole East Coast, and Carroll was from a foreign country. Uh, we'd lost the Liberty Bell, which the Russians lost the equivalent when they lost Kiev. Um, that kind of trauma has to be dealt with, and people feel the need for somebody to stand up for them, and Putin's done it. So my view is Russia's actually a democracy. It's just, you know, the one where the results but, are not good. But uh, that, uh, I don't know where to go with this. I'm just stunned. Um, what, what do you consider democracy? I mean, Putin, start with Orban, okay? Orban got into office. He went to school. He was, he was educated on George Soros's dollar. He goes to George Soros's, you know, liberal West-leaning university. He turns around and he, he gets into office and he manipulates every part of the system to make sure that he gets elected and keeps getting elected. Do you think that's democracy? Do you think the uh, Hungarians really I regret, want one? I regret to say, yes, it is. Right? <laughs> Democ democracy is really a simple thing. Everybody wants to talk about democracy the way freedom does, that you're a democracy if you have elections and everybody can vote, and you have a whole slew of sort of civil rights. But that's the point I'm trying to make about Ted Cruz and John Cornyn. These guys are not defenders of civil rights. They're not even defenders of everybody voting. But the, the elections produce them, the alternative to holding elections in Texas and with the result that you get Ted Cruz and John Cornyn is to prevent Texans from voting for which you have to use force. Well, if you deny people their right to vote, then that's certainly not a democracy. So you simply have to accept that democracy has some possibility of producing the kind of society you'd all like to live in, that I would like to live in, that I have fought for, literally. Right? Mm -hmm. the, um, but you also got to realize that if you're going to have elections, you may just not get that. And uh, conditions in Russia are such that temporarily you're not going to get that. Kyle. Conditions in Hungary are <laughs> such. What so. do you think? I'll just make two points about that. One, I think you have to distinguish between democracy in the sense of people voting in the way that you just described and liberal democracy. So liberalism and democracy are not the same thing. You can have illiberal democracies, you can have liberal, et cetera. So a lot of times when we talk about democracy, really what we mean is, is this a liberal society? Mm -hmm. And so Dick is right to say, yes, you can have a certain amount of voting and maybe end up with a bad outcome. That said, I can't really agree with a lot of what you said because just to take Hungary as an example, and I know probably most of us don't know a lot about Hungary. I'm not gonna claim to know a lot about Hungary. But what I do know is that, is that the regime there now is incredibly controlling of the media to a degree that's really kind of shocking, controls the discourse around political issues throughout the country. And so the idea that there's voting that's meaningful in any way is really hard to, to sustain. So I think even in examples like that, it's very difficult to say that Hungary today versus Hungary 10 years ago is the same kind of democracy. But, but if voters want to hear that but they're not hearing discourse. Anything. They're not no, hearing they, anything. No, they're hearing what they want to hear. They hear from Putin what they want to hear. What? And that's... But in both I was only cases, speaking of Hungary. In both cases, the, the systems have been stacked against... It, 
they've been m manipulated so that the fewest number of people are able to have a say. Do you think the people who voted for Kemp in Georgia wanted him to win? And do you think he could have won without the manipulation of the vote? V voter fraud, voter, voter fraud in Russia is real, right? Three authors have written this really convincing book as the finest study of voter fraud ever done. Um, one of them, by the way, is a mathematician living and working and employed in a state institution in Moscow. Right. So the notion that people aren't free to say what they said by Russian standards is, is, is false. Right. Now, the, um, the voter fraud makes a big difference when elections are close, like it did in Georgia. But Putin's got a 70% approval rating. Mostly, he also gets a 70% vote. Mostly what happens, when you've got a 70% approval rating, what's the point of going to the polls? You know he's going to win, right? So what they do, if he got less than 70% because his opponents went and his supporters stayed home, then it would appear that he was weakening. And so in order to avoid that, they pump up the vote so that his vote comes out at his approval rating. But he still has the voters. I mean, nobody in the U.S. ever wins a presidency by 70%. The last time we had a president that popular, well, we briefly had one when, uh, you know, um, uh, George Bush, uh, the elder, started Desert Storm. But um, the other popular president we've had with a sort of consistent 70% was after Monica Lewinsky, Clinton's rating went up to 65%, and after he was impeached, it went up to 70% and sort of hung out there. <laughs> All right, so do you, I mean, do you think that if we acknowledge that there are more autocrats in the world, I mean, you, do you agree that that's true? Oh, no, there aren't any autocrats in the world, right? I mean, one of the things we have to do is use words in a meaningful way, right? Autocrat is actually a reference to Peter the Great. And Peter the Great was not satisfied with being the Tsar, so he promoted himself by calling him Autocrat, which is a name they drew, drew from the Byzantine state in the sort of the, before the 15th century, right? The, the, there's no, the Autocrat was a lie. There's a, a famous historian of the Roman Empire, Mary Beard, who writes a sentence that everybody should think about. And the sentence is, no sole ruler ever really rules alone. Well, if that's true, there's no such thing as a sole ruler. What there is is a difference between countries where the support for the rule is composed of a minority, North Korea, right? A few communists, everybody else suffers. And countries where the support for the ruler is composed of some really big proportion of the populace. And, you know, Russia, Hungary, they're in the second category. Can we just call the first category autocrats? Well, <laughs> if, if, if you wanted to, but the thing that would be wrong would be to suggest that the first category has a sole ruler. It, no sole ruler ever really rules alone. I don't think anyone thinks that. I'm sorry? I don't think anyone thinks that, that there's a single, I mean, your, your point's correct, but I think we all know there's multiple people around. The question is how centralized is it yeah, How much popular support so, so, is there really? Yeah, I'm opposed to centralized leaderships that prevent uh, dissent by force. And, but the problem is, you know, you, it, there's a big difference between preventing almost everyone from dissenting 
and preventing some people from dissenting. And All right, where would you both put Trump in this spectrum? Oh, he's That's an absolute Democrat. He only just barely won. And, uh, <laughs> he's a Democrat. Look, it seems to me that the term autocrat has a lot to do with how the person who is at the top of the food chain exercises that power. I mean, you know, the, one expects, regardless of how many votes you get at the ballot box, one would expect a Democratic president to be inclusive in, in his government, in his embrace of the population, you know, things like that. Freedom of speech, <laughs> and the media, newspapers are good, you know, building block of democracy, that sort of thing. Kyle, what do you think? <laughs> Help me here. I, <laughs> I think Trump obviously has a great affection for authoritarians around the world. He's made that really clear. I think he wishes he was one. And he said this. I mean, it's not, it's not a mystery. He's very clear about that. The presidency gives him an enormous amount of power, a frightening amount of power. Luckily, there's a lot of restraints on that power, and so he hasn't really been able to exercise that. But I think there's no question that if he could, he would like to be much more of an authoritarian, maybe even an autocrat, if he could. That's where his tendencies lie. I know you said you think he's a Democrat, but let, let's probe that a little bit more. Just exactly how does he display traditional democratic sensibilities. Well, you know, if your notion of democratic sensibilities is that, you know, you respect human rights and you are upset if a journalist gets murdered by your ally in Saudi Arabia and things like that, then of course he's not a democrat, but that's where I started and what I really... See, the problem with defining it that way is you've just introduced a contradiction into your definition of democrat. And democrats are people who seek uh, the election by the popular will, and but then if the popular will is wrong, then they're not really Democrats, right? This is my example. This is my example about uh, Ted Cruz and John Cornyn or Mitch McConnell. I know all of these guys are Democratic politicians. What respect do they have for human rights, for civil liberties? How interested are they in Jamal Khashoggi, or how interested are they in the world oil price? And that's the problem with democracy that people just don't want to accept. And you understand, of everybody up here and probably in the whole room, there's nobody who's a committed opponent of Donald Trump more than me. I mean, you may be as much as me. There's probably a lot of committed <laughs> opponents of Donald Trump. But no, you know, under no circumstances do I want this man to be president. But, you know, he's simply acting like a president. A few short examples. Right? Today I was teaching about Franklin Roosevelt. We used to be U.S. law democratically arrived at that if you were receiving state assistance, you were a pauper and um, you couldn't vote. So in, 1930, uh, in 1929, suddenly the number of uh, people receiving state assistance greatly increased because of the Depression. So in 1932, Roosevelt, thinking he could uh, pick up their votes, said we got to, uh, said it's un-American to enforce these pauper laws. They're still on the books, 
but the people who tried to enforce them just couldn't get it done. I mean, Roosevelt's opponents naturally did try to enforce them. Is that democracy, you know, tossing out the role of law by presidential fiat? Well, it's a Trump kind of behavior, but you would never say Roosevelt wasn't a Democrat. Yeah, but I think it depends on, you know, you don't judge any leader on one incident or one decision. It's a, you know, it's a panoply of, of behavior patterns. And uh, I think, I mean, I certainly feel, and I'd be interested in Carl's point of view as well, um, that there is a convincing litany of decisions and behaviors by our current president that are way out of the norm. I mean, I could disagree with lots of, I mean, I would have disagreements myself with with every president that's gone before, but when you put all the, you know, the le the legacy together, uh, none of them uh, is quite as off the charts as this one. Here, here. <laughs> There's no question. He's wow. <laughs> Let me just say something about the democracy point. I think it's it's important to remember that when the Constitution was written the framers were not big fans of democracy. I mean, one of the reasons we have the Electoral College is precisely because they didn't really want a lot of democracy. The Senate was originally just meant to be the state legislatures picked the Senate. We changed that. So there were a bunch of ways in which they never liked democracy either. But we've evolved. We've evolved. We've evolved in a lot of ways. I mean, the vote was, I mean, there's a, we could go on and on about all, all the ways in which we had a very, this is again the point about are we a liberal society or democratic society? Yeah. They didn't really like democracy. They weren't that high on liberalism either. They, eventually, we kind of, I think, have improved. Right. When it comes to Trump, you're right. He's done a lot of things that are out of the norm. A lot of those things, unfortunately, are not necessarily against the law. They're just things that he's done, just norms we had about behavior. Like when you made a decision that had major implications, you actually consulted with the staff around you. Like this is a basic idea. He's thrown that out the window. Mm -hmm. So he's made major foreign policy decisions, major domestic decisions, mm -hmm. and he just tweeted them out. Right. No one even knows right. until he does that. So those things are very out of the ordinary. Right. And again, they're, they're, um, I don't want to debate the semantics of autocracy, but when one person is making the decision by tweet, mm -hmm. then it's much closer to what I would consider an autocratic or authoritarian tendency than when you're doing it in consultation with both your aides, your assistants, Congress, et cetera, et cetera. Or what about the way he treats different, you know, I mean, he denigrates his own intelligence community. He, he did is, it today. Yeah, he did it today. He is trying to undermine a free press in every way he possibly can. Um, I mean, it's just one. He can do all those things. Yes, it's just, yes, we don't, can. there's no, Absolutely. there's no precedent for a president coming out and saying, actually, the CIA is naive. Right. That would never happened before. <laughs> But he said that today. Right. right. Well, tell me this. I mean, to the extent that we do see more authoritarian leaders around the world, does Trump contribute to that? Uh, no. Okay. Why not? Uh, yes. Because because Trump because Trump has no influence on what happens in other countries, and and actually surprisingly little on what happens in ours. Um, the, 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 remember the question is, do you have a small group? And by the way, by a small group, I don't mean nine or ten people. They've got nine or ten people plus their enforcers. 
And that's always a fairly big group, 6% in the Soviet Union, 1% in ancient Egypt. I mean, it's, it's a big-ish group. Or do you have a really big group like everybody can chime in? And so that's what we want to talk about. Okay, the real question is how do those groups form? And the thing that makes autocracy work is the failure of this population that vastly outnumbers the supporters of the autocracy, the failure of that group to organize itself and overthrow the autocracy. Um, and what that turns out to depend on, this is my book, Russia in, global, in a Global Process. Plug. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, just real briefly. <laughs> what that depends on is whether you got one language or two. I mean, in a simple way, right? So there's something the population speaks, which may be lots of things, and there's something separate that, the, that this small group speaks. And uh, Trump is the perfect example of having plain English as his only language, right? He has a fourth grade vocabulary, <laughs> which, which is the vocabulary all of us use to talk to each other most of the time. And so for autocracy to happen, you've got to have this group organized by their own separate jargon. And uh, he doesn't affect whether a separate jargon prevails in Burma or you know, Central African Republic or what have you. And it, it, that's all a policy issue. But Carl, do, do you, does the president, <laughs> does the president um, have a responsibility to uh, show leadership um, uh, not just to the country, but, but to the world. I mean, we do have a tradition of, of that. We definitely do, and I think uh, for sure American presidents have a lot of influence. They can't shape languages. They don't decide cultures. They can't even really change some of the major things about even a small country. Mm -hmm. But without question, the United States, the power of the president to use the military force in the United States, the economic uh, role that we can play, our sanctioning powers. Look at what's happening in Venezuela right now mm -hmm. as an example. We have a long history of, of, for good and ill, shaping the leadership of countries around the world, shaping their politics. We've done that forever, um, or not, at least for a century, if not more. And so certainly presidents do that. They should do that uh, well, and they should do it in a, in a way that um, works for the good of, of the world as well as the United States but they do it. So I think Trump is certainly doing that. He's trying to do it right now. So, um, so to answer your question, is he doing that? Should he be doing it? He's doing it and he's trying to do it. I think he's probably enabling autocrats and authoritarian regimes around the world, even just through his rhetoric, mm -hmm. just the way in which he talks so favorably about any number of different Turkey, Hungary, China even. So I think he's certainly promoting that. But then there's many other more concrete ways in which he does. Um, do you think, though, that um, other leaders, other democracies, have any responsibility or role to play in, in the fact that, that we see... Uh, I mean, look, Xi Jinping is... Um, I, I was in Beijing not too long ago, and he gave a big speech sort of gloating about his own system and how it's getting things done and how much better it is than American democracy. And this seems to be a theme that is, is gaining some traction in some countries around the world, some in Asia, some in Africa for sure. Um, so, I mean, do, do you see that as, uh, as having an effect on sort of the greater universe and how 
political systems and leaders will lead or, or not? Uh, very little. Really? Uh, democracy does have an effect uh, on whether you have democracy elsewhere, right? And democracy, democracy doesn't even start until 1915. The first country where everybody can vote and all the leaders are elected is Norway in 1915. At the time, American women couldn't vote. So if you don't think Carol should be a member of this panel, <laughs> then America was a democracy before 1919, right? And, and time won't accept that. Um, from that tiny beginning in this obscure little fringe country way up north on the edge of Eurasia, democracy is spread really widely. Um, uh, what drove the spread of it well, never mind, that's a long discussion. But the, but the point is, what drove the spread of it was something that people were under no control, and the people who spread it did not want to establish democracies, and it happened to them as a result of what they do it, doing without them having any idea. And so the notion that this is a policy consequence, uh, Cal did mention one thing I want to mention very briefly. Right after the Arab Spring, we were all hoping for democracy in Egypt. By the way, the linguistic conditions were totally wrong. Um, and so they actually held an election and they got an elected government. What was the first thing we did? We supported a military overthrow and we continued to bankroll a really vicious dictatorship. This was Obama's doing. Now, I'm a big supporter of Barack Obama. I think he's the greatest president we've ever had. But wow. we don't have discretion in these things and we don't have control. And that's the first thing we need to learn. So as we go forward, I mean, is there, are, are there things that the United States can do to encourage democracy? I mean, this institution is a cent center for the preservation of democracy. We have, you know, the National Democratic Institute, the International Republican Institute. We have a lot of NGOs who are working on the ground in lots of countries trying to encourage democratic processes. Is that all for nothing? Well, it's not all for nothing, but uh, the first thing to do is to change the name of this organization. <laughs> right, we don't want the preservation of democracy, we want, we want its transformation. Um, Cal really understated the case about the people who wrote the Constitution. The first Attorney General of the United States, uh, once it founded, uh, said at the Constitutional Convention, every man here thinks that our problem is too much democracy, right? And democracy got its, this English opponent of the American Revolution said, why is it that the loudest yelps for liberty should be heard among the drivers of Negroes? Well, Jefferson, Madison, Washington, you know, Patrick Henry, all drivers of Negroes. And there's, there is this relationship between race and what's called democracy that's inherent in its formation everywhere it developed in Europe. And Norway avoided it because it didn't have people of any other race. Although, but, the, but they were copycats, which is why they broke through first. And we have to start by confronting problems of race in our own country, which we have left, left and allowed to fester the entire time we've been a country. And once we do that, then we'll have a model for the world that might mean something for the future of democracy. If we don't do that, I have a lot of fear. 
well, the question is, can we wait that long for us to be perfect? And so, Carl, are there things we can do? Can the United States... To promote democracy. To, to promote democracy. Should it be promoting democracy? Do we have to just sort of fix ourselves first? I mean, anyway, you pointed to a bunch of ways in which we have a long history of promoting democracy. The, the Bush administration, George W., made democracy promotion a big part of his agenda. Mm -hmm. goes even further back. I don't think we've been incredibly successful when we try to do it in a very overt way. I actually think, I'm not sure I can really back this up with evidence, but I guess my instinct is I think our example has often been a more powerful force for democracy promotion mm -hmm. than our actual policy efforts, which often end up working at cross purposes or somehow don't take root. Um, but all of that said, yeah, I think, the, I think people look to Xi Jinping, they look to China, they look to the United States, they look to powerful countries, and they model themselves to some degree on that. Mm -hmm. Whether that changes the underlying circumstances, I don't believe, but it doesn't mean they don't try. So I do think we can do those things, and I think we can attempt to. We just have to be a little bit sober about the ability to do it. And I think the Bush administration showed it doesn't go the way you want, usually. Right. I mean, we invaded Iraq in we were going to be created as liberated. A lot of things were going to happen that didn't happen. Yeah. So I think that's a cautionary tale, and there are many like that. Do you know why the invasion of Iraq was called Operation Iraqi Freedom? Because it was originally called Operation Iraqi Liberation, and then they started asking themselves about the acronym. Oops. <laughs> So um, let's go back to American democracy a little bit. And um, are there things that can happen in this country, in this country as opposed to around the world, where we can, um, are we going to be able to, to the extent that any of us think that the current president is having a deleterious effect, what do we need to do going forward to improve things? I mean, get rid of the Electoral College or um, you know, dilute its effect by state laws. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know, other things. I mean, obviously voter suppression and voting rights are incredibly important. I think we're rolling that back in ways that are really troubling. Mm -hmm. So I think just at a, even if we take the most basic level of democracy and forget about the issues around, are we a liberal democracy or what sort we are, the ability of people to vote and have their voices heard is not, uh, it's not perfect, it's not even very good in a lot of places. So we need to work on that. I think that's first and foremost. And then there are many other things we could do about the role of money in politics. These are not easy to fix, mm -hmm. these are getting harder. But that would make a difference. Um, voter education, civics, basic civics education. I mean, I think when we look at issues around the problems with I mean, there's many studies that have come, about, come out about why is it that people were so easily swayed by clearly ridiculous stories. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was just a piece in the Times this week about exactly that, um, basically. And, you know, the upshot was the people who were swayed really don't have critical thinking facilities. And you need to, you can't necessarily teach that very easily, but you can try. And so I think having a more engaged, more educated public obviously would help. Carl, I mean, Dick, what do you think? Well, I mean, you say I, we have I to address the, the, the race problem. The function uh, we have to face two things, which we are sort of facing a little bit. Well, one of them is the race problem; the other one is the gender problem. And so to, you know, to, all of us—I mean, there are all these people here. 
right? All of us need to make a commitment that we're going to confront those problems in ourselves. There was a great thing in the New York Times by this black writer who says, look, white people need to have a confessional attitude toward race. People are not racists, right? We have a racist discourse. We distinguish between white and black, and the blacks are in the minority, so that distinction causes them to get shafted. And we have to look at ourselves and say, I'm going to reject this racist discourse. I'm going to support candidates who do. I'm going to work. I'm going to go ahead and put the effort in. That We have a massive majority against the Republicans who elected Donald Trump. And instead of exercising that massive majority, we've failed. Now, you know, can the Democratic Party, you know, the famous remark of, um, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on his name at the moment, but the famous remark by the humorist, I'm not a member of any organized political party, I'm a Democrat. Unfortunately, Rogers. that remains true. And, and we need to ask the Democratic Party to get its act in gear and, and confront these issues when majorities um, turn this country into a transformed democracy, not a preserved one. Well, now it's your turn to ask questions. Hi, I'm uh, Dave Gutman from Pasadena. And uh, to uh, um, Professor Anderson's point, uh, the Japanese Americans under Roosevelt were sent away to internment camps, and it was a dem democratically uh, decided uh, position. Uh, I believe that the founders, going to your other point, was were afraid of mob rule. And as we get more democratic and get more people involved, how do we fight that tendency towards mob rule, the wolves would always choose to eat the sheep, even though they might, the sheep have their rights too. If you have an inclusive definition of rule, I mean, the thing about the Japanese in World War II is that the US at that point wasn't a democracy. I mean, there were enormous numbers of people who weren't allowed to vote, among them Asians in uh, California. And so since, they, since Japanese weren't voters, you could do to them whatever you wanted to. If you let everybody vote and the white majority ag agrees not to be racist, um, then you solve all of those problems instantly. I mean, one of the interesting things about the United States, I was just talking to my class today, and this one Chinese-American kid says, yeah, that's still true. Uh, the United States believed that every Asian was a Chinese. <laughs> right, so Japanese, Koreans, Vietnamese, whoever was here in the U.S. was considered a Chinese, and they come in, came under this blanket exclusion act in California against Chinese, where where they all lived, or almost all of them lived, and so they had no voting impact. The problem solves itself, but you have to realize that in in democracy you're always taking a risk, and right now we're going through the risk period. Doesn't mean it's not a democracy; it means it is. Hi, my name is Eric Nissen. Thanks for the discussion. Um, with a democracy such as our country that's been involved in a lot of coup d'etats and overthrows of governments, all the way from Mohamed Mossadegh in 53, Salvador Allende, and for continuing years all along, is it our place as a democratic nation to be telling other nations what they can be doing with or without their own leaders and with their own policies when it means that we're taking our own financial gains and other 
you know, gains like control and things like that when we have, you know, a couple hundred bases all over the country and we're implementing our own values onto other countries. I guess I would say, I don't know if it's our place, but I think those things that you described are true for sure. They happened in the past and many of them, I think, were, uh, you know, were sad chapters in our history. All that said, here and now, should we have a voice? Should we encourage, like, let's say what's happening in Venezuela right now. Um, should the United States simply stay out altogether or should we be encouraging, um, let's say, more democratic forces? Uh, I think in general, we have a really powerful voice. And if you've been around the world, you know people really pay attention to what the United States does, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. So I think we should be utilizing that voice. That's very different than actually overthrowing uh, dictators or, or, or democratically elected uh, officials like Allende. So that's a totally different thing. But if you're talking about should we be speaking to it, yeah, I think we should. And in answer to your point, you know, if we'd protected Allende instead of intruding Pinochet, wouldn't you favor that? I, of course, now there is the question. I mean, you know, it's, I think George W. Bush did want to institute uh, democracy in Iraq. The trouble is it's impossible. And the second problem is, can the United States uh, bureaucracy actually accomplish something like that? Uh, one real quick story, if I may, the, well, or maybe not. I think they want to try to get to okay. as many questions as possible. Yeah. Hello, uh, my name is uh, Dante Ivory. Um, as we approach um, the 2020 election, um, what is your um, opinion on candidate uh, Kamala Harris? I think Kamala Harris is great. I think there's a lot of positive things about her. Um, I'm eager to see who else jumps in. You know, at this point, I guess, if I had to say my own, my own personal view is I want to find a candidate who's going to win. That is my first and foremost thing. I think if she's going to win, I'm 100% behind her. Dick? Well, she sure addresses the sex and gender issues, which I think are fundamental. <laughs> Next Sex and race issues, pardon me. Um, I would think that many of us thought the rise of digital social media would have um, provided more transparency and maybe helped counter the rise of autocracies. But is it possible that they were more of a threat that forced the marginal democracies to, to trend toward autocratic uh, behaviors? That's a really good question. And I think it's unclear right now whether that's actually true, whether whether social media, internet usage generally have been kind of a force for ill or good. But I think there's a lot of evidence that it has worked that way. And if you look at what certain countries have done, China being maybe the best example, um, incredibly sophisticated manipulation of, of the digital world in a way that's only strengthened uh, the Communist Party. And you see that in a lot of other places. Obviously, in our own country, it's had a pretty pernicious effect. Hi, my first name is Tom, and my last name is Roth. And um, the thing that I noticed in this discussion that was fairly constant and fairly present was the idea that we are merchants of democracy. And I'm not sure that's what democracy is about. I don't know that it needs merchants. What it seems to me is democracy is what those who seek it want it to be. And it's not what I want it to be, it's what you want it so my question is, as she asked, what's my question? <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> I, I think you're right. Um, I mean, you cannot impose, that's one thing we certainly have learned uh, with 
you know, trial and error. We can't impose democracy, and democracy is not just elections. And we were, we falsely believed that elections would lead to democracy. You've got to build the processes, and people have to have a buy-in. I mean, it's ultimately what the people believe in and care about. Um, that will, that also works in this country too. I used to believe that the institutions were just incredibly resilient and couldn't be shaken, and I'm not quite so sanguine about that anymore. So I totally buy in to what you say. Hi, uh, Jeff Carr from Silver Lake. Uh, the whole issue of autocracy versus democracy, and this is a hard one, but of Trump not encouraging openness, uh, him going to Saudi Arabia as his first foreign country, and then apparently, along with Trump, uh, or with the Saudi leadership saying, you know, yeah, Qatar is kind of a pain in the butt. And even though we've got a huge military base there, yeah, they're, they're bad guys. And so then they blockaded Qatar. And I, I, I just think that's an example where Trump's you know, embrace of autocracy has some trouble. Wanted your all opinion on, do you think I'm seeing that accurately? I would say, uh, I mean, that's a very complicated story, but I think there's no question he is in bed with or was in bed with the Saudi regime in all kinds of ways we still are. Unfortunately, that's a longstanding feature of American foreign policy for reasons that I will say do not make a lot of sense and never really have, but we have treated them as a very powerful ally, uh, a friend, which really is difficult to understand if you if you look at the situation. So I think, yes, he, he maybe has gone even deeper than past presidents have, um, but he's not the first. Hi, my name is Mark Jaffe. If we are to believe that the greatest power given to the American president is the power to persuade, and the greatest power given to an autocrat is the power to enforce, and we're to look at the edicts that came out initially in the Trump presidency with respect to Muslims and the seven countries that were banned, and not only that, but to look at the appointments of, to the Department of the Interior, the Department of Education, and the Environmental Pr Protection Agency, and look at how Trump has used the power to enforce as the main aspect of the power of his presidency, could it be argued that in fact, Trump has abdicated the greatest power that he was given with his election? That's an insightful question. Yeah. Um, uh, um, David Hume uh, pointed out about the Mamluks in Egypt that since force was always on the side of the people living under rule, that um, the rule itself had always to be based on opinion. And whether the group is small or large, there's a way of talking to them that either constitutes the group, group as small, that is, persuades a few people to act, or a way that persuades many people to act. So no matter what kind of ruler you are, whether you're a dictator or a democrat, the only power you have is the power to persuade. The only thing anybody has is a voice. And that's the thing about democracy. You'll have it if you all use your voice. You want to? Can I just add something on that? So I, I, I think that Trump has shown, if you compare Trump to Obama, President Obama tried very hard. A lot of Americans did not like him. But he tried very hard to persuade those who did not like him that what he was doing was right, whatever the issue might have been. He made an effort to be president for all Americans. 
And unfortunately, Donald Trump does not ever attempt to do that. And instead, he almost seems to double down on being the president just for a ever smaller, shrinking group of people. So he's not really interested in persuading the others. So that's why I found your point insightful, because I think he's used the levers of power that he was handed, unfortunately, through the election, but he doesn't try to expand that circle in any way. That's all the time we have for tonight, but before we do close, I'd like to thank UCLA, our partner tonight, for bringing UCLA's, or Zocal UCLA downtown. So please, a round of applause for UCLA. Also, thank all of you for joining us. Uh, if you didn't have a chance to ask a question, not to worry. All of our featured guests will be at the reception just outside right after this. So please come grab, grab a drink with us and continue the conversation. Finally, a big round of applause for our fabulous panelists tonight. Thank you so much.